0: For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for this day and this opportunity that we have to gather with your people and to worship you. To join together in prayer and to lift up our concerns to you. To have our voices joining with the angels of heaven praising you. To receive from your word a declaration of pardon. And now to meditate on your word. Father, would you please send your spirit and grant that we may gain understanding and that our lives may be changed as we seek to follow Jesus. For our children and children's worship, Lord, bless that time. Draw them to yourself that they may know you and that they may love you. Would you do all this for Jesus' sake? Amen. So, the theme for uh, 2022 for, for my preaching ministry is going to be following Jesus. Uh, I know I've told you that probably somewhere around eight times. I think that's how many Sundays we've had. Uh, just a, a, a reminder that that uh, what we want to grasp is is what does it really mean to follow after Jesus and to consider that together. So we started out in January we, we spent time looking at the the Great Commission the uh, place where where God gave the, the marching orders, if you will, to his church to go and make disciples of all the nations. And then we began to look at different instances in which Jesus issued the command, follow me. And we started by looking at Levi when he was sitting in the tax collector's office and Jesus walked up and said, follow me. And he left it and he followed him. And we saw from that the invitation to us to heed the call of Christ because he doesn't only call Levi but He invites us to follow Him. Last week we looked at that section where Jesus is, is uh, declaring Himself to be the, the Good Shepherd. And in the midst of that we saw that, that uh, His sheep hear His voice and follow Him. And that recognition that we can have assurance as we follow Him. That that is a place in which assurance of salvation is possible. And this morning we're looking at this section from First Peter. Remember Peter received the uh, um, call from from Jesus in which he was said uh, follow me and i'll make you fishers of men and a part of what peter has done is he he gives us that same call and he tells us that we're too we are also to follow after jesus and specifically he shows us to follow jesus example and in following Jesus' example, it's not simply an intellectual exercise. It'd be easy for us to think about that in, in just intellectual terms, be able to write out, well, following Jesus' example would kind of mean and get, and get these basic ideas and, and have this, this intellectual understanding of what we need to do. It's, it's more than that. It's more than maybe the asceticism that might come to our mind that, oh, I need to follow after Jesus, which means uh, I need to walk around in a robe and sandals and, and uh, sell all my possessions. Is that what it means to follow his example? And the answer is no. Um, but what is it? And, and what I want to give to us is what, what I call um, three rubber meets the road ideas that I think are coming directly from this passage. That these are just, this is down to earth, practical, this is what it is. And I hope that they will help us. And they show us what we need to do in order to follow Jesus' example. And the first one is that, that to follow Jesus' example, I need to develop obedience. Verses 21 and 22. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And, and I, I wish I didn't have to, but I, I, I need to give some sort of a disclaimer. We live in an age in which uh, the word obedience is, is sometimes frowned upon. Um, we think obedience, well, no, no, we we live by grace, not by the law that 's law, and we see this 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 division between law and gospel that that isn 't really found in in the word of God, and so I, I, I think I need to point out and, and just remind us we we don 't need to develop obedience in order to get saved okay that 's not what we 're talking about at all it isn 't even remotely similar, near or anything. That's, that's not it at all, because even if I were to develop obedience in my life right now and obey completely God's law for the rest of my life, that doesn't change the ways that I've broken His law in the past, does it? I still find myself guilty for that, and so, so it would never be enough. And so, of course, that's not what we mean, and, and, I, and I want us to, to, to understand that, that obedience is just a matter of our saying, you are Lord and your way is good and right, and so I'm going to walk in that way. That's what obedience is and to consider it in that term. And then we think about developing it, developing obedience. Webster gives a definition of of develop as saying, to improve by realizing potential or capability, to expand or enlarge on, to increase effectiveness. Now think about that as it applies to obedience, that I want to develop obedience. I want to uh, improve by realizing potential or capability. This is where we begin to understand. We're talking about men, women, and and young people who have been redeemed by the Spirit of God. That God has forgiven you of your sins and He sent His Spirit inside you and His Spirit is inside you with incredible power and you are going to realize that potential and that capability to obey, that the Spirit is in you, you can follow after God. To think of it from the idea of to expand or enlarge upon, that you've developed some level of obedience in your life. There are some areas in which, in which you do follow after God, and you, you are uh, careful to, to obey what He has commanded you to do. And how do we enlarge upon those? How do we expand those? How do we, how do we make that even more a part of our life? That's the other element that we're thinking about when we consider this idea of developing our obedience. But we have three enemies that we have to overcome in this effort to develop our obedience. And the first one is the world. And that is the world system around us. And the world system around us is opposed to our obeying. And we find it in, in all of the, the, much of the media that we, we receive into our, uh, our minds, and much of the advertising, much of the, the uh, also the examples of those who are around us, examples of showing us how to disobey, and examples of people who are very successful, phenomenally successful, and yet they're living in disobedience to God. And, it, and it, it tries our hearts, does it not? It makes it difficult. Is that then the way to go? The answer is no. So that's one enemy that we have to overcome. The second is the flesh. And that is we, we have inside us sinful habits where we've gotten used to living in disobedience. And it's so easy when things get hard to fall back into those habits. And the third is the devil, who is the tempter. He's the one who brings the temptations into our life, which tries us. So we face all of these, these obstacles. How do we overcome them? I think there are a couple ways. We, we need to first remember John fourteen fifteen. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And so it's my, 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 my obedience stems from my love for Jesus Christ. So as I develop that love, my obedience should be able to then be increased through that relationship. Also, remember the exhortations given by Peter just a, a chapter before where we are now, where he says in chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And so I remember these verses and I I, I receive this exhortation and I recognize that God is calling me to something. And I wonder how. How do I develop obedience? I develop obedience by guarding my actions. By guarding my actions. Look at verse 22. It starts out. It says, We're to follow in his steps who committed no sin. He tells us that Jesus has given us an example. He tells us to walk in the steps of Jesus. And in telling us to walk in the steps of Jesus, what's the very first thing he says about Jesus? He committed no sin. And that tells us that we need to guard our actions. That we need to be careful in the way that we live our lives. Now, it's, it's easy for us to get a, a little distracted. By that And begin to to be afraid and and think, oh, gee, that's just such a high calling. How is that even possible? And I want to remember that uh, Hebrews 4 gives us a, a little bit more encouragement, that area. Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin." We can get some uh, maybe imprecise theology sometimes and we may may be familiar with the term total depravity and we know that total depravity says that that man is sinful in all of his parts. It's different than utter depravity which says that man is entirely sinful everything about him and it's different than than another perspective that might say well there's some good that dwells inside man kind of a Pelagian view but this is the, the, the understanding that man is sinful in all of his parts. One of the things that can happen is if we're not super precise, we begin to apply that to the Christian. Because the total depravity, technically speaking, applies to the non-Christian person outside of Christ. But when we have trusted in Christ, there's been a change. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now... We're alive, and not only are we alive, but we're now dead to sin, so that that has changed. But it's easy for us to begin to think about ourselves as still being totally depraved, and we think about ourselves in, the, in relation to sin, and we think, well, I, I can't obey all the time. I can't do that. It's not possible for me. I'm, I mean, I'm sinful. And we'll say, I'm a sinner. I'm not sure the Bible necessarily calls Christians that, but, but we may use that term and get ourselves caught up in that idea. And what it can do is it can create inside us kind of a defeatist mindset, right? Do I begin to say, well, if I can't ever, I know that I can't obey, why will I even try? I mean, I I know it's not going to work, so why do it? And I think that this this verse helps me to understand that. Peter says, follow in his steps who committed no sin. Why would he give me that example? If there's no possibility, if there's no way of, of somehow touching upon that holiness that christ has, why would he say be holy for i am holy if there's no possibility of it right it would seem like you know dangling a carrot 10 miles out ahead of me that i could never get to assuming i like carrots that much maybe a brownie is a better picture right yeah and it creates this defeatist mindset until i begin to say no he tells us that because there is hope he tells us that because first corinthians 10 13 is true which says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. No temptation is more than you can bear. No situation in your life demands that you have to sin in that situation. Every temptation, provides an op- God provides an opportunity for you to obey in the face of that temptation. And that gives me hope. And as I look at this verse and I see this, that I'm to follow in his steps who committed no sin, I see that I need to guard my actions. And it reminds me of the words of of Vince Lombardi, who said that perfection is unattainable. But if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence. And I really like just the, again, the the rubber meets the road mindset of that, right? I got to keep aiming higher. And as I do, I find that I probably achieve something better than I thought I could have in the first place, right? And that's what I want to look through. Guard your actions. Where are you tempted? Each of us needs to be knowing about our own weaknesses. And you are. You maybe run away from it and try to avoid it and pretend it's not there because it's kind of scary when you see it. But if you'll stop and find out where it is, you can find a way to really build around that weakness. Where are you tempted? Are you tempted in the area of sexual sin? That's a a, a huge temptation in our age. And is this where you're tempted? And in recognizing maybe that you're, you're tempted in that area, you need to be aware of that. And you need to recognize it. You need to acknowledge this is a place where I may fall. Maybe you're tempted in the area of anger. That you find yourself raging against those around us. Throughout the COVID pandemic, one of the things that I've seen, and I've, I've named it Corona Rage, because I see that, that we've, we've been restricted in every area and uh, we feel those restrictions and, and, and it just begins to build inside us. We, we feel like we're being held back and we're not free and our freedoms are taken away and it just builds this anger that lashes out at different times. As you look back at news stories over the last couple of years, can't you see that? That that's precisely what's been going on? Well, some of us, that's just where I, re- I wrestle. That's where my weakness is. Maybe your weakness is in the area of bitterness or unforgiveness, that you hold on to a grudge, that your motto may be, I may forgive, but I'll never forget. And is that the sin that you cling to? Maybe it's fear, that though you know that you're told, be anxious for nothing, yet you find yourself more likely to be anxious for everything. Maybe it's cynicism, that the fact is that you look upon all of them, whoever them is, with great suspicion. Whatever that may be, we need to identify where it dwells so that we can avoid that place. Where do I face that temptation? I need to stay away from there. A number of years ago, I was uh, raising support. Robin and I were, we thought we were going to Scotland. And so I was uh, traipsing around uh, the country raising support so we could go. And one of my trips had me get in a car and leave Phoenix, Arizona, drive all the way up through Utah, up through Idaho, into northern Montana, down into Wyoming, over to Colorado, down through New Mexico, and back over to Arizona. It was a long trip. I think it was somewhere around three weeks that I was, that I was gone, just just driving around the western part of the United States. Saw some beautiful country. Um, and I had about a, well, it was like four days, close to a week, that I just didn't have anything to do, and I was going to be between Montana and Wyoming. Um, and I was thinking, well, what do I do? I said, oh, oh, Yellowstone. I'll go to Yellowstone. It'll be great. So I booked this room in, in West Yellowstone, um, not aware of the fact that Yellowstone sh- shuts down in November, and so you couldn't enter the park from West Yellowstone. That just wasn't even a possibility. And do you know there's like nothing in West Yellowstone to do for four days, and I was there, and I had paid for it ahead of time and had to stay. Anyway, but I didn't start from the northern part of the, the uh, park, and I decided to go into the northern park, and there was like no one there. I I had no idea that there were times in which there would be no one in Yellowstone, this massive park. But there's no one, no one. And so I'm driving along, not seeing another car. This is great. I thought, I'll go for a hike. That's what I'll do. So I pull off into this remote area to go for this hike in Yellowstone. And I get out just kind of tooling along. And and I come up to a bridge and there's a a post there and it has a paper on it. I said, well, I'll be a good tourist. I'll read that. It says, grizzly sightings. One was seen yesterday, and I started to look all around, and I'll tell you what, I walked much more quickly to get back to my car, <laughs> because I realized I was like the only food source available at that moment, and a grizzly could fatten up for the winter on me. They'd be all right. They'd, they'd be ready to go lay down. So, so, but, but you know, when I began to understand where the grizzly was dwelling, I went away from it when I begin to understand where my temptation dwells, isn't it more deadly than a grizzly? I need to run away. I need to find another place to be. I need to be certain that I'm not in that place. Reminds me of a story I've told in the past about the the man who discovered he was an alcoholic and had decided to turn away from his, his drinking and and as he was driving home, he realized he drove past his favorite bar every night. And so he began to pray, and he asked God, 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 would you move that bar so I don't have to drive past it every night? And God just didn't do it. You know, that bar stayed there. It seemed to even get busier. More people were there. And it, it just came to grow and grow. And finally he says, Lord, why won't you move that bar? To which the Lord replied, well, why don't you find another way home? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I want God to just kind of move it, So I pray, Lord, keep me from temptation. But I keep going to that place where temptation dwells. Why would I do that? Why not make another choice? I need to guard my actions to be very, very careful. But then I need to also guard my words. Verse 22 also says, Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Think about the ways in which deceit comes from us. Sometimes we just flat out lie, right? Sometimes we just do. And, you know, maybe the most common Christian lie is we say, I'll pray for you, right? And in reality, we know if we think about it at that moment, we really have no intention to pray for him, but it seems like the right thing to say. But we also lie in other ways. Sometimes we lie by not giving the whole truth, right? By telling just a portion of it and thinking that that's close enough, and so that ought to be all right. Right? And we know that by doing that, we're actually deceiving the person that we're talking to, and we're kind of doing that on purpose. And it is a common action, even among Christians. The other way, maybe the most common way in which there's deceit found in our mouths, is by exaggeration. Anybody who's been in marriage counseling will know that marriage counsel will tell you two words, which are almost always true, are always and never, right? And you ought not to use them. Ever. Never. That's the other, the third, right? That, that, these, that the fact is, what we do is we begin to exaggerate. And if we're honest and really look at it, that exaggeration makes our words false. And therefore, there's deceit that's found in our mouths. But you see, not so with the Lord Jesus. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He completely, totally guarded his words. And we too need to guard our words As Ephesians 4.29 tells us, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Notice he doesn't say, let less and less unwholesome words come out of your mouth, right? Limit the unwholesome words that come out of your mouth to like four or five a day. It's not what he says at all. Let none of them come out of our mouth because they're all deceit. They're all inconsistent with the God who is truth. And we get from the, the great prophet Thumper, the, 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 the message, and, and we all hear it, right? Got to get that foot a pump up. If you can't say anything nice, don't say nothing at all, right? And that's good. There's nothing wrong. That's good. That's good. If you can't say something right, like just, just zip it. Just say nothing. But shouldn't we aim for higher than that as God's people? Right? Thumper shouldn't actually be the first place we go to to understand how we ought to behave. Right? We, we should step up a, a bit higher, which is what Paul is saying. Instead, speak that which is good. That which gives life. That we have the ability in our words to give life to the people around us and to determine that I'm going to guard my words so that the words that I'm speaking are words that are encouragement in life and they give hope and they're loving and they're kind. Those are the words that need to come from my mouth. And I've got to discipline myself. I've got to guard myself if I'm going to have that. You see, I need to develop obedience and that's going to require that I guard my actions and I guard my words because I'm following the steps of Jesus who committed no sin nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. But I also need to choose faith. Look at verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. I want to look at the word entrusting for just a moment. It's used a couple different times in the New Testament um, that I want us to consider. The first is from uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 1, where we read... Early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. They entrusted him to Pilate. It's the same word that's used there. So to entrust is to deliver. So Jesus delivered himself over to him who judges righteously. We also see it in uh, John chapter 19 And verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up, entrusted his spirit. When Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges righteously, he gave himself up to him who judges righteously. You see, there was no fighting from Jesus, was there? There was no resistance in giving himself over to the Father. There was total abandonment. And I use the term abandon when I speak of worship, that worship is to abandon myself to God. And Jesus entrusted himself to the Father, to him who judges righteously. And that entrusting is an act of faith. We say, without faith it is impossible to please God, for the one who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So how do we entrust ourselves to God the Father? How do we choose faith? We choose faith by, by first of all dropping our guard. I think it's important to look at verse 23 and to recognize the context in which we're looking at this. It's a context of conflict. It's the, the, the trial and the, the crucifixion of Christ which is pictured here. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering... He uttered no threat. Suffering is the word from which uh, you may have heard of the paschal or the paschal lamb. It's a word that speaks of passion or the passion of Christ. This is the same Greek word that's used here in this place. And so it's speaking of of his passion, of his his dying. And it's this time of intense conflict. And in the time of this intense conflict, the, the, the operative picture that is given to us is that Christ is entrusting himself to God the Father. It's the context of conflict. But how do we deal with conflict? Don't we tend to lift up our defenses in conflict? Don't we begin to try to protect ourselves? As we begin to f- see conflict, one of our first reactions for many of us is to respond in anger. Someone comes at us with, with some accusation or some, some, some conflict that's coming into our life, and we'll respond and, and we'll show them some level of anger with a raising of our voice, a, a narrowing of our eyes, a, a hardening of our face, and with a strictness of our words, we want to communicate to them, hey, don't you talk to me that way, right? We want to begin to get their attention. We want to show to them that we're angry. We're someone that they need to be afraid of, and that will keep them away, and that will protect us from from the conflict. For others, we may choose things along the lines of being very defensive. Well, someone comes at me, I'll just defend myself. I'll show them how I'm always right. I'll just correct all, everything they have to say, and I get very, very defensive. And that's, that's how I begin to take care of myself and to protect myself from the attack that I feel that is coming toward me. For others, we may just use unforgiveness. And the fact is that someone has wronged me. I will never, ever trust them again. We begin to make our motto, I will forgive them, but I will never forget, right? We begin to hold on to that unforgiveness, thinking that by not forgiving them, I'm going to actually protect myself. Others will choose another direction which is, which is less confrontational and, and may choose, I'm going to use flattery. So someone comes at me and I'll just talk about how wonderful they are and how smart they are and how it's just so nice the way that they, they've done everything. And by that flattery, which I don't mean at all, but it'll stop the conflict and I'll be safe because I'm hiding behind my flattery. And others, the conflict comes and I'll just get really, really quiet. Just quiet. I just won't say a word. And that'll make the conflict go away. You see, all of these are different ways in which we cope with conflict. And and they aren't wrong necessarily all by themselves. But they all demonstrate that what I'm doing is I'm trusting in these these defense mechanisms kind of as a shield to protect me from them, right? I think that this defense mechanism is what's going to keep me safe in the midst of this conflict. And so I hide behind it. In so doing, I've forgotten Ephesians chapter 6. In verse 16, where the Apostle Paul tells me, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. That I'm not trusting in God to protect me from these difficulties. I'm trusting in my self-protective strategies. They've become my shield that I want to protect me In the midst of this danger. But you see. If instead I will pick up that shield of faith. And I'll say. I'm going to trust God to protect me. Not my anger. I'm going to trust. The opinion of him who judges righteously. To protect me. It allows me to do something. I find myself in this conflict situation to where they're coming at me. And instead of coming back with anger or coming back with criticism or coming back with defensiveness, they come at me with a concern and I pivot. Because I don't have to protect myself from them. God will. I can instead listen to what their concern is. I can love them and I can turn beside them and put my arm around and say, how can we fix this? And now we're on the same team. And it begins to change the entire situation. But the basis of that is I'm entrusting myself to him who judges righteously instead of the one who would come against me. I need to ask myself, what does God think? Think of this moment in Jesus' life when he's being crucified. What do the Jews think of Jesus at that moment? They think he's a charlatan, right? They think he's a blasphemer. They think he's a Sabbath breaker, not a Sabbath maker, a Sabbath breaker. That's what they think of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is truth? They're just wrong, right? Did God the Father think any of that of his son? No, of course not. And Jesus knew that, right? So it didn't matter what people thought of him. It really, their opinion was just wrong. Because he knew the truth. He knew what the Father thought of him. And he aligned himself with him who judges righteously, right? I've developed a tool that I find to be somewhat helpful when I face a situation where someone comes at me uh, with with accusations. I call it the accusation flowchart. Here's an example of it. Um, And and the the, the big question of the accusation flowchart is, someone brings an accusation. So the accusation comes against the Lord Jesus Christ. The accusation is, Jesus, you're a blasphemer. Okay? He has to ask the first question. Is it true? That is, he has to say, what does God think about this, right? Because God's thoughts are what truth is. And so he has to look and to understand from God's perspective, is this a true statement? And it's either yes or no. And if we find in the accusation that it is a true statement, we have to ask a follow-up question. Is it bad? Now, if I've been told I'm blaspheming, And it's for me, is it true? And I say, yeah, well, is that bad? Oh, yeah, it's very bad. Then the next question is, well, can I change it? Well, can I quit blaspheming? Certainly. So what do I do then? Quit blaspheming, right? And then I turn to the person who brought the accusation against me, and I say, thank you, and may God richly bless you, for you have helped me to more clearly honor my God whom I love, right? But if at any point I come to the point and I say it's not true, I can just look at the person's smile and forgive. They called Jesus a blasphemer as they nailed the, the nails into His hands. And what did He say? Father, forgive them. Right? And I can walk in His steps who while being reviled did not revile in return. I can too entrust myself to him who judges righteously. I drop my guard considering what does God think. I need to develop obedience. I need to choose faith. And finally, I need to promote reconciliation. Verse 24 and 25. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd. And guardian of your souls. Do you notice the emphasis. On the substitutionary death of Jesus. In these verses. Right. That's what he's talking about. Is Jesus taking our place. Jesus dying. For our sins. This is the picture. That he gives to us. Of the one. In whose steps we are to walk. The one whom we are to follow. You see, it was accomplishing reconciliation, which was his purpose from the beginning. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel tells us about the hope of, of what Christ will do. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 16, and he tells us, and this is just the first part of that verse, I will seek the lost... Bring back the scattered. Bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. What is God's determination toward His people? What is He going to do? He's going to pursue the lost. That's what He wants to get. He wants to go out and to find those who are lost and bring them back in. Why did He send the Lord Jesus? Because He was going out to find the lost and the broken and to bring them back to Himself. We see this purpose in the name of Jesus In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Jehovah saves, and it is Jesus. Why did he come to earth? What was the the name that was given to him at his birth? And it was given by heaven to say this is the name that he must have because this is what his purpose is. His purpose is to save his people. From their sins. Luke chapter 19 verse 10. Jesus said. For the son of man has come. To seek and to save that which was lost. And in Galatians chapter 4. The summary of this is given. By the apostle Paul. In verse 4. But when the fullness of time came. God sent forth his son. Born of a woman. Born under the law. So that he might redeem those who are under the law. That we might receive the adoption as sons Do you see what the purpose of Jesus was? It was about reconciliation. That's why He came to this Earth. That's what He came to do to accomplish reconciliation between sinful men and himself. It's the very core of Jesus' life. It's the very principle upon which He lived His life. It led every decision that He made. His obedience to God the Father was driven by His nature as God, but it was also driven by His determination that He must provide a righteousness that would cover all of His people. His determination to go to the cross and to suffer the the wrath of God was determined because of His determination to reconcile His people to His Father. It's what drove Jesus and it's what ought to drive us. It needs to become a a, a moving force within our lives so that Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is our call to be promoting reconciliation. First of all, reconciliation between people. And I start out with reconciliation between people because of the principle that we see in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, where we read that if someone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. He's saying that I have to start down here at at the most basic If I can't find reconciliation with a person that I can see, how can I seek reconciliation with one that I cannot see? You see, it doesn't work that way. It's not going to be a reality. I've got to be building it among my relationships with people, which is why doesn't Jesus talk about that in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, if you are bringing your offering to the temple and you remember that your brother has something against you, go to your brother and be right with him, leaving your, your, your offering. That more important than the offering is your reconciliation with your brother. It has to start there. Don't bring your offering, which is your, your seeking to be, to be reconciled with God. You reconcile first with your brother and then come and take care of the other. And so we need to have that as a part of our lives to be an example that I'm, that I'm, I'm seeking out those with whom I have a broken relationship. And I'm seeking to mend that relationship. Whether they have something against me or I have something against them. Now, now it works this way that reconciliation, you see, requires two elements. Reconciliation requires repentance and forgiveness. Both of them are Necessary. So as I'm seeking to be reconciled, I begin to say, okay, I've done something wrong against my brother. I need to go and demonstrate repentance in my life. That's why I'm the one who seeks them out. And their responsibility is between them and God. But when someone has broken the relationship with me, they've sinned against me, and they come to me with repentance. I need to be certain that I have a forgiveness in my heart. And it's where those two join together that reconciliation is able to be found. And I need to build that. And by my example, I need to show how important it is. But I also need to build it among other people. Matthew 5.9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. Because the Son of God was the ultimate peacemaker, was he not? But I need to begin to look at my words, and how often are my words actually dividing people? How often are my words dividing people between the us and the them? Between the we and the they? To where there are those who are outside and they're the bad guys and we're the good guys. And now my words are just dividing. They're not bringing people together. Reminds me of a time we went to, uh, with some friends, there's a, uh, uh, an Easter play every Easter at the, outside the Mormon temple in uh, Arizona. And we went with our Mormon neighbors and we sat with them for three hours and talked to them about Jesus. I was deeply disappointed as that we were surrounded by Christians holding up signs saying Mormons will go to hell. I'm pretty sure that our three hours with our friends were a far better witness to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ than any of those signs. We talked about God for three hours. No one else did. Because we're seeking to build that relationship we want to bring together. And I need to begin to look at my own life and and find where are those times where I'm being divisive instead of bringing together. I'm not promoting reconciliation at that moment. I need to promote reconciliation. But I need to also promote reconciliation with God because you see, our sin alienates us from God. How can God have a relationship with someone who's in rebellion against Him, right? How can I love God and do what He hates? It's not possible. It's irreconcilable, right? And so my sin alienates me from God. By its very nature. But Jesus came to pay the price for that sin, right? To suffer the just wrath of God toward that rebellion. So that that wouldn't be a barrier between me and God. And He invites me to find reconciliation as I receive the benefits of His death through faith. He invites me to believe. I need to ask you, have you believed? That Jesus died for your sins? Put your faith in that, even now, trusting that Jesus has died for your sins. And then Christ sends us out to the world to invite other people to be reconciled to God. It's one of those times when my arrogance rises up high and I think, God, surely there was a better way, right? Right? i'm I'm just not convinced his plan is right you sent us and that's when i need to be humbled and as i was told right before the service and remember that he is sovereign and he determined that that is the best way and so we need to be involved in reconciling sinful men women and children with a loving god As a pastor, there are uh, there, when I read a novel, there's a, a type of novel that is really impactful to me. And it's a novel where the main character is a pastor. Needless to say, there aren't many. <laughs> we're not a heroic lot. <laughs> but I found a couple where the main character is a pastor. And both of them were written by pastors. And I like that even better because they get it they they understand what goes on inside a pastor and they're able to write from that place and as they write in, in both of these books one is uh, the final beast by frederick beekner and the and the other is in his steps by charles sheldon in each of them they they show the pastor writing a sermon and they get it i mean they, they what they write about is is exactly what i experience in my own life and 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 it's not what we would always think. You know, it isn't that, that you know, I, I get to this pious place and the Spirit falls upon me and with, with His great wisdom I, I, I see every word coming out on a page. Right? Now there's some. You know, there, there's, there's great faith that's, that's a part. And there's incredible doubts. There's courage to go out and to face the things that we've got to face. And there's amazing cowardice and terror. Both are apart. You only get to see kind of one of those. But inside me, I'm re- re- dealing with all of that. I'm preaching to you, and I'm seeing your smiling faces, and that's time. And, and I'm also wondering, are they judging me? and What are they thinking? And, you know, and all that's going on inside my head while I'm trying to, to preach. And, and that's all. And these, these, these authors are able to put that down. And it's just it's kind of cool. And I want to read to you a little bit from Charles Sheldon, the very beginning of his book, uh, In His Steps, again, just another section because he gives a picture of a pastor writing a sermon on 1 Peter 2, verse 21. Yeah, so this is kind of <laughs> what it's like, and there are parts of it that are true. First off, he's doing it on Saturday, and sometimes that's when it's got to be done, and, and you've had a busy week, and you gotta, now you've got to get her done. This was that one of, one of those weeks. So he says, the minister went up into his study, shut the door. In a few minutes, he heard his wife go out, and then everything was quiet. That's not really believable. Anyway, he settled himself at his desk with a sigh of relief and began to write. His text was from 1 Peter 2, 21. For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that ye should walk, you should follow his steps. He had emphasized in the first part of the sermon the atonement, as a personal sacrifice, calling attention to the fact of Jesus' suffering in various ways, in his life as well as in his death. He had then gone on to emphasize the atonement from the side of example, giving illustrations for the life and teachings of Jesus to show how faith in the Christ helped to save men because of the pattern or character he displayed for their imitation. He was now on the third and last point, the necessity of following Jesus in his sacrifice and example. He had put down three steps. What are they? And was about to enumerate them in logical order when the bell rang sharply. Once again, very true. Yes. Yes. I love, I love the, 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 the way that uh, Sheldon shows the, the intellectual analysis of the passage, right? He shows he's, he's interacting with what the passage says, and he's, he's allowing the passage then to take him to other places of Scripture and is, is, and is giving understanding of those Scriptures and allowing those Scriptures to give understanding of the, of the text, and he's, and he's trying to apply it to his folks, right? He wants people to get something that they can, they can take out, and he's got his three steps, and he's, 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 he's even saying, I need to put them in a logical order, not just have three steps, but they need to be purposefully placed here. And so he's, he's working on all of that, and, and that's great. And what he's about to experience is he preaches that sermon and then a homeless guy who's been in town for a week walks up the middle of the aisle and says, but what does following Jesus really mean? And then he collapses, is taken to the pastor's home and dies that week. And he realized all of his intellectual analysis lacked something. As good as it was, there was something more. That's what the rest of the book is about. But that inspired me to try. To give us. A way to implement this idea of following Jesus' example. What, is it, what does it really mean? In a rubber meets the road sort of way. And what it means is I have to begin to develop obedience in my life. Recognizing that example of Christ. It means, if I'm going to do this, I have to choose faith, and that is entrusting myself to God the Father all the time. And it means, that I have to promote reconciliation in every relationship in my life. And in so doing, I may, just barely begin to touch on following Jesus' example. May God give us that grace. Let's pray. Father, you know the labor of my heart, the the deep prayer, the desire of of my, my life. I want desperately to be able to follow in your steps. And I want just about as much for this congregation to taste that more and more. Father, grant us from your grace that we may indeed follow your example. Lord, we ask you to bless us, to speak a good word about us. Would you speak the good word about us, O God, that we are a people who indeed are following you. That in our lives we are developing obedience, that we are choosing faith. And that this is a church that promotes reconciliation. Father, would you do that great work in this congregation? And would you show your great glory? So that all of the voices of the universe will join in praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.